Hi, it's me, Steve Bedell. Okay, it isn't. It's Jessica Chaffin. You may know me from Ask Rana with Rana and Brian or the Kibitz podcast, or you may not know me at all. But what you should know is that I have a new podcast coming out this December produced by Reboot Studios called The Jewish Bazaar. I co-host the show with esteemed scholars Tony Michaels of the University of Wisconsin and Eddie Portnoy of the YIVO Institute in New York. On this show, we explore the strangest corners of Jewish history, everything from wild-eyed murderers to enraged revolutionaries, wrestling rabbis to pornographers, and anything else you can think of that should be brushed under the proverbial Jewish rug. It may not make us look great, but it sure is interesting. I'm so excited to share the first episode with you guys here. If you like it, you can search Reboot Presents the Jewish Bazaar wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, rate us. You know how it works. We can't wait for you to hear this show. Here's episode one of the Jewish Bazaar. Hi, I'm Jessica Chaffin, and welcome to the Jewish Bazaar, where me and my two illustrious co-hosts, Mr. Tony Michaels of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, distinguished professor, have I got that right, Tony? That's exactly right. Uh, And Mr. Eddie Portnoy. I love calling you misters, because who who would ever dare? Uh, Mr. Eddie Portnoy from the YIVO Institute in New York, uh, head of exhibitions and general um, Michigas, I believe. Is that your title? That's accurate. You've got a Zabar's mug right behind you while we're recording. That's, does that come with the job on the first day? or You know what? I, actually, it, it did come with a job. It was in the office uh-huh. when I got here. There you go. Eddie, do you hold a doctorate or are you merely a mister? I do oh. hold a doctorate, but I, I, I try not to tell people. It's, it's Dr. Portnoy. Are you Dr. Michaels? Yeah, I of am course. Dr. I mean, of course. Yeah. Tony is totally the type who would go through the whole thing and then not do the last piece and not get the doctor. <laughs> am I right, Tony? How long did it take I, you to defend I, your I, thesis or whatever you have to do to become a doctor? I didn't even. I didn't even have to do it. I submitted it. I submitted my thesis uh, in August. I don't know what year, and then I was a doctor magically, what suddenly, did, and what a professor. Did, um, you do your thesis on, and Eddie, can I ask what you did yours on? I'm just curious. My thesis sure. is my thesis is on uh, the socialist Jews of yesteryear and uh, the Yiddish culture that they built. Uh, so still sticking to that program, <laughs> pretty yeah, strongly. Yeah, he's, he's not. He. he, he I he thought it was going to be on Jewish big wave surfers, but I guess not. What uh, are there any? <laughs> uh, you must be thinking of Sean Thompson, the 1978 <laughs> world champion. Was he Jewish? He was, and from South Africa. Great Jewish ash- athletes. That story coming next. Great. Not today. That's not today. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie, what about you? Uh, my my dissertation was on uh, cartoons of the Yiddish press oh. in, oh. Warsaw, New, in Warsaw, New York, in hmm. the late 19th, early so 20th also, centuries. Also was that interesting? To it. Uh, not to most people, but to yeah. me. You found it amusing. I find that comforting in both cases. Uh, and in fact, Eddie, what you're, what you wrote your, I guess uh, what you wrote your thesis on will somehow eke into or slip into what we were, we're going to talk about today, which is Jewish murderers. I'm going to guess uh, that there actually, were some, 
you're going to tell us some stories and I'm going to guess that there were some cartoons in some publications at that time. If we've got a, if we've you got know, a murder I, that lines up with these dates, I don't know. To, to, to be honest, there aren't cartoons, but there are engravings. And the reason, there, the reason there aren't cartoons is because, um, uh, these murders took place in the 1870s. Oh, okay. So political cartoons and, didn't extend to that sort of thing at that time. Well, they, you know, they, they, they didn't exist, uh, in reference to uh, crimes as grave as murder at that in time. In this community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, so, t- okay, I stand corrected again, but isn't that just what this show is about? This show is uh, <laughs> a show where we take a little detour from the usual um, path of Jewish history and culture, and we learn a little bit more about ourselves. Some of it we like, some of it a little less so. I mean, whoever talks about Jewish murderers? No one. They talk about David Berkowitz, but wasn't he adopted? <laughs> that's, that's, that is what they say. That's my favorite. The ones we'll, the ones we'll he, take and the ones we won't take. Oh, David Berkowitz. No, no, he was adopted. He, was, he, he does look remarkably like his parents. He definitely looks picture. like he was adopted from a Jewish family. I'll say that. Yeah. 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 You know, actually, well, you know, what does 23 and Me say about I'd David Berkowitz? I'd love to know. I would love to know. Yeah. yeah. So before we get into it, Eddie, I just want to tell people in case they want to dig deeper when the episode is over, the murder we're about to get into is you also write about it in your book, Bad Rabbi, which is a terrific collection of stories. Um, and, well, I shouldn't say stories it makes it sound fictional, but blips of Jewish history. And well, why don't you tell people what it is? So that, I, so that you, you're the doctor. <laughs> it's uh, stories from mostly from the Yid- from the Yiddish press. Uh, sort of translated and retold uh, in really s- small capsules, small digestible capsules. If you like this, you'll love that. And we'll put a link in the episode notes. So, Eddie, I think you're going to kick it off for us. Is that right? Okay. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, two Jewish murderers. One of them actually accidental, but still a murder. Uh, I believe it's these took place in. Uh, that is yep. that is correct. Uh, these are two cases that occurred in the 1870s in New York City, um, and they took place at a time when there weren't a great deal of Jews uh, in the United States. It is a decade before uh, the mass immigration uh, of Jews from Eastern Europe, and so the community is much smaller and as a result, they're perceived differently. So what percentage are we talking Um, about? So how long have they been here? Percentage wise. Well, look, Jews have been in the United States since the colonial period. Uh, uh, You know, since, since, you know, before there was a country, they, the, the first Jewish arrivals uh, came in in 1654. Um, but you know what? Let, maybe maybe we should let Tony, who's who's more expert in these affairs, uh, give give us like a little brief overview of uh, give us a ve- give us of, a very uh, short context uh, if this is relevant to your to your tale, Eddie, of what we're talking about because I think obviously these days most of us um, associate New York with have a bus having a bustling Jewish community, and I'm going to guess that at this time the Jew was more of a stranger than than they are now but maybe not yeah there was there was the jewish community let's say by the civil war was pretty small and new but it was but uh, so 
let's say in the 1820s, there were only about 4,000 Jews or so in the United States. It was pretty small. But with each decade after that, the number grew pretty substantially, so that by the 1870s, there might have been a quarter of a million Jews in the United States. Most of those Jews were from Central Europe, which is to say what we now consider Germany or parts Mm -hmm. of Austria, uh, certain parts of France, mostly from Central Europe, some from Eastern Europe. And uh, then in the 1870s, the numbers started growing uh, pretty significantly, and most of the people coming were from Eastern Europe, from the Russian Empire mostly. And so that by... World War One. I, I don't know, there were about 2 million Jews in the United States. We don't have exact numbers, maybe more than that by World War One. So the 1870s was the beginning of a, of a real large influx of Jews that grew with each decade up to World War One. What percentage of the United States? I don't know, less than 1% at the start of this story, you know, right by the end of, you know, the end of the Civil War. It's under one, I think it's under 1%. And what 1% does it feel like, population. what does New York feel like at that time? Just in terms of the Jewish community, meaning Mm -hmm. now, obviously the Jewish community is a very visible and um, important part of the fabric of New York. I'm going to guess at that time, it was no different than any other immigrant community where they stuck to their own little enclave and people sort of understood them and sort of didn't understand them. Is that? To some extent, yeah. I mean, first of all, New York was much smaller. So, uh, you know, Harlem was farm country, the Bronx, most of Brooklyn, this is all mm-hmm. rural. Um, so most of New York City is the is Manhattan. And then let's say from what we consider today, uh, I don't know, the what the 70s and 80s down to the tip of Manhattan is New York City. And Jews are, are, are clustering in the Lower East Side, uh, which is the home to the largest Jewish community in the United States, even at this early point. Um, on the, on, at the time, the Lower East Side was called Klein Deutschland or Little Germany. Most of the residents of the Lower East Side are Germans, not not Jews, you know, Protestants, some Catholics, German speakers. And in that overall German settlement and the Lower East Side or Klein Deutschland, there were Jews, Jews from Central Europe, as I said before, but also a growing number of Yiddish speaking Eastern European Jews from the Russian Empire. And that community is starting to burgeon. So by the 1890s, it's almost entirely Jewish on the Lower East Side. So in the 1870s, in a way, it's a a real transitional decade from the time in which the number of Jews in New York is small, not insignificant, but still fairly small, to by the end of the decade, it was really large and, and Jews were on the verge of becoming at the early, in the early 20th century, on the verge of becoming the largest immigrant group in New York. The Irish were very big already. The Germans were especially large in the mid to late 19th century. Then come the Jews in really large numbers at the end of the late 19th century. And then Italians okay. uh, in large numbers. So that, again, Jews are just a fairly small minority in the 1870s. By 1900, they you know increasingly are defining New York's uh, defining New York with more and more groups coming as well. Bet, let's get back to the murders. So uh, just to Tony's point about, uh, you know, the Jewish uh, community in the, in the 1870s uh, and the increasingly large influx of Jews from Eastern Europe uh, in 1870, you see the, the uh, uh, publication of the very first Yiddish newspaper in the United States. Uh, And that's immediately followed by, um, someone else saying, this is a terrible newspaper. I'm going to make my own. Mm-hmm. So 
someone else publishes another Yiddish newspaper. Uh, none of these do especially well. Um, you know, the really most successful Yiddish newspaper to come out, it comes out in 1874. Um, and that's a weekly called Yiddish Gazette. And, and it, uh, that actually goes on to be a, quite a successful paper. Uh, but as far as the rest of the Jews go, they are a, a relatively, in New York, their, their numbers are increasing, but they're re- relatively small and sort of quiet community. Um, uh, a lot of peddlers, you know, small merchants, uh, things like this. So um, in uh, December 1875, uh, a woman's body was found in a cornfield in East New York. Uh, East New York is between, um, I think, Brownsville and Howard okay. Beach. And at the time, you know, as Tony said, this was all farmland. You know, only sort of you know, the core of New York City was Manhattan and really just most of, mostly like lower Manhattan. Um so Brooklyn at the time was, you know, was all farmland. Uh, a farmhand finds this body in a cornfield uh, on December 15th, 1875. And it's been slashed in Ooh. the neck. There's blood all over the place. Uh, it's, you know, a gooey, gross murder. Um, and so the farmhand goes to the farmer and tells him that he's found this body. The farmer contacts the Brooklyn police. Brooklyn is not yet part of New York City. Uh, it's its own city. And so the police come and investigate. They find a knife nearby and they bring the body into the Brooklyn morgue. Hmm. Uh, and they put out word in Brooklyn that a body was found and people, if people have someone missing, they should come to the morgue and see if they can identify this body, see if it's one of their relatives. And, you know, a few dozen people come in and no one's able to identify the body. And so the police conclude, well, you know, maybe she came from New York, meaning, you know, Manhattan. So they um, put an advertisement in uh, a newspaper uh, for a, you know, describing this woman, what she's wearing when, where she was found and that she's, she's uh, no longer alive. Now at the same time, uh, there's a family that lives on Bayard street on the Lower East side uh, named Rubenstein. And they had a woman who worked for them uh, named Sarah Alexander. Uh, Sarah was also a relative of theirs, uh, but a more recently arrived and poor immigrant. And she sort of worked, uh, kind of as a maid in their house. And one of the things she did was she um, uh, helped nurse uh, her cousin, Pesach Rubenstein, back to health when he had consumption. What a great Ellis Island name, by the way, Sarah Alexander. Mm -hmm. Right. It's well, actually, names didn't get changed at Ellis Island. Well, then Um, she didn't come here named Sarah Alexander. No, she didn't. But but also... uh, Ella, they, she would have come into Castle okay. Garden, which was the place on, in Lower Manhattan where you were before Ellis Island became uh, the you know the stopping off point okay. for immigrants. But yes, it, it's it's yeah. a changed name, uh, from what yeah. I don't know. Sexy. Um, so she was yeah. nursing her cousin so, Pesach, pa- Passover back Rubenstein, health. back to help. <laughs> Passover yeah. Rubenstein, not a, no longer such a popular no. name, but you know once a popular common name among among the Jews. So 
uh, as it happened, she hadn't shown up at work for a few days. And in fact, her brother, John Alexander, had showed up at the Rubenstein's house and asked if they had seen Sarah because she didn't she didn't come home. So they said no. And they also said it was weird that they she did, hadn't shown up for work. So uh, the father uh, of the family puts an ad in the newspaper describing, uh, you know, say, saying girl missing, describing Sarah Alexander and the clothes she typically wore. When he went and bought a copy of that newspaper that he placed the ad in, he noticed another ad on the same page that had been put in by the Brooklyn police that described virtually the same mm. person. Dark so, day. Yes, very dark day for the uh, for the Alexanders and the Rubensteins. So he contacted the police who, this was in Manhattan, who then contacted the Brooklyn police. Officers from the Brooklyn police department came to the Rubenstein home and began interviewing the family. Uh, they told him, they told the police that the last time they saw Sarah was on a Sunday. Uh, she um, had helped them prepare to go for a wedding, to go to a wedding. Uh, and then she left the house and never returned. Uh, and they, you know, they just never saw her again. And the, you know, following days they put ads in the newspapers. So when um, the police were there, they said, is there anyone else we should be interviewing? And they said, well, maybe you should interview Pesach, but he's in shul, you know, he'll, he'll probably be home pretty soon. Not long thereafter, Pesach comes home. He's very surprised to see the police there. They start interviewing him about Sarah. One of the things he says, and he doesn't create any suspicion uh, about himself in any way, but one of the things he says is that, you know, it's weird. I had a dream that Sarah was abducted and uh, found in a field somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so the police are kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Will you come to the morgue in Brooklyn and identify the body. And he's obviously been very close to her. She nursed him back to health. She, they spent a lot of time together. So when they ask him if he'll accompany them to go to the morgue, he freaks out, starts screaming, says, absolutely not. I will not go to the morgue. They say, you're coming to the morgue. And they physically drag him out of the house and bring him to the morgue in Brooklyn. Uh, when they get there, they surround this table that has her body on it. It's covered up by a sheet. When they lift the sheet and he sees her face, he begins screaming hysterically, jumping up and down. They immediately arrest him. Uh, what they find when they begin an invest in their investigation and, uh, you know, at this time, there's no fingerprinting. Forensics is, you know, very primitive. Uh, but what they do find is that the mud on his boots uh, matches the mud on her clothes. Mm. And this is thought to be the, you know, the uh, uh, mud from the field in Brooklyn. Uh, they also see that his, um, uh, his clothing is flecked with a kind of brown, with brown spots, some kind of dried liquid. 
that they think to be blood. Uh, and when they ask him about it, he says, oh, that's blood from the fish market. Uh, they also take his boots to the field in Brooklyn and keep in mind it's December. So the ground is frozen and they met, they're able to match his boot to footprints in, in the oh, field in Brooklyn. That's really, so they build, that's they actually, quite a case. I mean, again, talking yeah, forensics, so they, like, they, this is very good police work actually. Yes. So they, 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 they build a very reasonable mm -hmm. case. It's, you know, it's all circumstantial, but that's all that's available. They interview a variety of people. Uh, they find, um, you know, as I said, they found the knife uh, next to her body in the field. Uh, they discovered that that knife is a knife that's made with three rivets. Apparently, most knives at the time were made with two rivets. And so they find the knife maker in New York City that makes, in Manhattan, that makes the three, the three rivet knives. And the, they interview the, the girl who works at the shop, and she fingers Pesach Rubicine as having purchased a knife, a knife from them. Um, additionally, they, uh, they find, uh, the, um, one of the streetcar drivers that brought them to the ferry and he points out Pesach Rubenstein as being a, um, a swarthy Polish Jew. Hmm. Uh, the best kind. Right, who was with this woman in particular. But, and but yet why he did, did remember why, them. Why did he remember them? Yeah. Why did he remember them? He remembered them because he said the woman wasn't wearing a hat. Oh. Which apparently Very was unusual. And this is a time, time. This is a time when people mm -hmm. wore hats. So she wasn't and you wearing could see a hat. Her face. It, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so um, you know, they, they, the police built this, you know, built this case against Rubenstein. Uh, Rubenstein's family uh, got one of the top lawyers, one of the top defense lawyers in New York City to defend him. They had that kind of money. Uh, they, all, they had the decent money. And also, apparently, money? apparently, yeah. yes, their friends and parts of the community mm -hmm. raised money in order to support, uh, in order to support uh, Rubenstein's uh, case. And they, um, at the trial, they, the family and the defense brought in a number of witnesses that could supposedly place Rubenstein in other place in, in other ah. locations. Uh, uh, unfortunately, none of these worked out. There was always someone else, uh, like the prosecution basically took it apart, um, you know, one, one person said that, you know, you know, I saw him in Shul on the day that, that, you know, the body, you know, that, that he could have been, he was supposed to be murdering this woman in East New York, you know, and someone else said, you know, you know, no, I, I, you know, I saw him in the market. Right. And it, he it couldn't have like, been, it, they overdid they, they, it. He couldn't have been in 13 places at right. once. Right. They, you know, they, 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 they totally, um, you know, you know screw, they screwed it up. They, they even brought in someone who uh, uh, allegedly claimed that someone else did it. Um, but that person couldn't keep his story straight either. Uh, and so as a result, um, the, and I also have to add that the, the trial took place in Brooklyn because that's where the body and the, was found and that's where the murder took place. Uh, and it was an enormously popular trial. Virtually, well, every newspaper in New York City wrote, you know, this was front page news on every, in every New York City newspaper. 
Um, additionally, people lined up to get into the trial just as, you know, viewers. It was, you know, it was a popular what they, venue what they for entertainment. call enter- this trial? And was it the subject of like pamphlets and serials at that time? Yes. Right. So that, that comes after okay. the trial when, so, so Rubenstein and the trial took, takes place in, um, uh, in March, uh, 1876. It lasts about 10 days. Uh, he's found guilty. Uh, when he's, when he's pronounced guilty, he stands up. Uh, and one of the reasons that, um, or one of the, one of the, sort of excuses he gave or the, and that his, his, some of his witnesses gave was that Pesach Rubenstein is too religious to have committed a mm. murder. He's an extremely mm. devout man and there's no way that he would have ever done this. Uh, so at, when he's, when he, he's uh, pronounced guilty, he stands up and he, from behind his ears, he unfurls his oh. payas. He has a very long payas he unfurls them and he says, do you see these? These would prevent me from committing any crime. I'm innocent. Wow. And with that, he's carted off to prison. Uh, the Raymond Street, the Raymond Street jail in Brooklyn, which is a notoriously horrible, uh, horrible jail with, you know, rats and mold. And it's, it's generally disgusting. Uh, and he sent, he's sentenced to Can hang. Can I ask, do we know anything about, um, <clears throat> him meaning like did he have a job or was he just a professional shul goer did this illness no, right. i don't know how old he was but did this illness you know you always hear the stories of he was a weirdo he tortured a cat he did this he did that i know we're gonna know more soon about the relationship right. between him and sarah alexander but i'm just really curious because right. that's such so, a psycho thing to do to stand up in front of the courtroom and say to pronounce himself in that way is such a like sociopathic or psychopathic thing to do. Right. Right. He so, also okay. Been so caught what, up in the what, fervor of the community, you know, yeah. this is really dramatic. The, the trial and the community right. supporting him and he's a celebrity. Right. Well, yes. A, a notorious a celebrity, but he yes. is the center of everyone's, uh, of the gossip at the, in this moment of New York and of the community. Yeah. Right. And right. So what, what, what the prosecution is able to, to bring out is Rubenstein's motive. So it turns out that Sarah Alexander was pregnant ah. and, and wow. Pesach Alexander, or I'm sorry, Pesach Rubenstein had found out that his wife was on her way over to New York from Poland. Oh. So the fact that he got his cousin pregnant when his wife was, let's say, imminently according to 1876 terms, which means, you know, in a couple Sometime weeks, in the next nine uh, months, she's going to be here. Right. Yeah. Uh, when, when she was arriving, uh, you know, he felt that this was a situation that he had to take care of. Now, um, you know, abortion at the time was illegal. That was one route that could have been taken, um, but he didn't take that route. I think that his, it, it looks like his first, he, he apparently didn't speak to her. His first move was to murder her, which so is insane. she told him that she was pregnant and then he lured her to this cornfield and violently murdered her? Yes. Yes. Huh. 
Yeah. And, and then flashed his pay as say, Where court. were his pays then, Tony? Uh, I <laughs> under a very him. furry hat, right. I guess. It was cold. Under, under, yeah. under a hat. Did not, yeah, un, yeah, yeah. It's uh, so it's you know. So for the that Jewish community, fun, this is a very upsetting um, animated show or whatever. If you think of it like someone who's about to do something terrible and then their pay is uh, animate and come to life and become like ropes holding their arms back before they can strangle somebody. You know, if I was I, an animator, I that that'd be kind of fun. I, I, I could I could see that in Big Mouth. That could a that could be a great show, character. which people should watch. They should yeah, absolutely watch it. It's fantastic. I, 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 happen, I happen to be um, the voice of, uh, as you know, of Shannon uh, Glazer, the mother of Jesse Glazer, one of the main characters. I yes. also play a dirty hotel pillow, and a few, and a few, and a few <laughs> other things. Um, but yes, it's I, I a great that. show. I love, I love that, that, that show. I love that show. I'm very proud to be show. part of that show. I haven't seen it. Your right. son should watch so, it, Tony. Uh, Your kids would love it. How will? Yeah. Yes, actually, you know what? My ki- my kids loved it. Your kids yeah, would also love it. It's just funny as to see can it. be and dirty. You and, could, it's a family show. I've seen Captain Underpants. Fam- no. <laughs> this is it's not very the same. different. Yeah. But anyway, we digress. This isn't a Netflix commercial. This is. Um, <laughs> it's a pace of Ruben. So, so anyway, uh, he declares he's not guilty. Then what? I mean, he's. But the court has right. already put him he, away. He, he, right. They, right. He's he's guilty. And, you know, there's there's a motive. He's guilty. But it's, there were, you know, do we know anything about, else, though, about his life up until then? Or this is just a desperate so man he, who felt cornered he, and this he, is what he did. He had been in the country for about three years. Uh, he his family, his parents or it was actually his father and his stepmother. Uh, and uh, I believe some of his brothers and sisters had come before him uh, and they probably suggested that he come as well because there were there was opportunity there and he worked as um a kind of jewelry peddler uh you know sort of on the street peddling jewelry to people uh i don't know how successful he was but he obviously wasn't in good health uh and you know i don't know how long it took for him to Did he have uh, consumption or something like that or was he just he uh, had yes he, he he had he oh he had uh-huh. consumption and you know as I said Sarah Alexander was hired to nurse him back to health uh, she did an excellent job um, you know she nursed him back to, to health so well that he he managed to get her pregnant so um, he's as I said found guilty put in jail he's sentenced to death sentenced to hang um, now in the meantime. Every New York City newspaper is writing about this. And one of the amazing things that um, has to do with this case is that I found out, I had never heard of this case before. And uh, at the time I came across it, I was in graduate school and I had read, you know, thousands of pages of texts on American Jewish history. I, you know, had sat in hundreds of hours of classes I, this is something, this seemed important and yet I'd never right. heard of it. So I went to the American Jewish history section of the library and started pulling books off shelves, looking in the indexes for Pesach Rubenstein. And I pulled about 40 or 50 books off the shelves and I found Pesach Rubenstein in three books. In one book, there was 
two sentence two sentences written about him. In another book, there was a paragraph, and in a third book, which is a history of the Jews of Brownsville, Brooklyn, by Alter Lonsman, uh, there was about a page and a half, and that was it. And I was sort of startled because I was finding so much material in the Ameri- in the New York City press about it. So at the time, and I want to say this is probably about 2005, 2004, 2005, a new database had come online of uh, American historical newspapers from uh, the 17th century to 1922, which is when at the time copyright ended, it ended and it allowed them to put all of these digitized newspapers online and it was searchable. So I went to this database. I put in Pesach Rubenstein and got 999 hits, which was the absolute total you could get. And what I discover was that uh, not only did every New York City newspaper write about this, but this was written about in virtually every single newspaper in the United States. It was almost as if it was syndicated. It was the story about the, the Jew murderer um, or the, the, the murdered Jewess. The Hebrew murder, that the Hebrew murderer of East New York. Uh, this was in this was everywhere. And so in the wake of the trial, as you said, um, there were a number of pamphlets printed. Now, uh, murder pamphlets is a type of uh, literature, a uh, very fascinating kind of uh, type of American literature that uh, begins appearing in the 19th century. They are sort of sensationalistic, often illustrated pamphlets about uh, popular murders that took place in the U.S. Now, typically for most cases, um, you'd have one, maybe two pamphlets created for you know each murder. For Pesach Rubenstein, uh, for the Pesach Rubenstein murder trial, uh, you had four pamphlets created, and they're all illustrated. Um, you know him, you know perpetrating the murder. Uh, in, 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 you know, in the trial, praying in prison, uh, you know, they talk about how he wears tefillin and a talus and they illustrate this. And what's amazing is this is probably the first time that a popular American audience is seeing, you know, what tefillin yeah, is. Yeah, really dramatic is. I've seen them. Yeah. 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 They're, they're amazing. And so the, the Trump, because of Rubenstein's you know, religious sensibilities. Uh, and because he's an immigrant, this becomes, a, you know, a sort of a Jewish affair. Uh, you know, really up until this tri- time, um, you know, Jews aren't perceived as, you know, murderers, as threatening. They're not, you know, the, the, the jails aren't full of Jews. Um, you know, they're, they're seen as, you know, reasonably upstanding citizens. And that's also the way they try to portray themselves. So the Pesach Rubenstein trial comes along and, you know, sort of destroys this image. You know, in addition, you know, the, the trial was so popular that in addition to all of these pamphlets and newspaper articles that were printed, um, the entire trial transcript was published as a book in the wake oh, of the trial. Were you able to get your hands on that book ever? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's 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 so amazing. Was it published it, you know, by a Jewish press or a non-Jewish press? No, 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 so no, no. It was, really it was published. by interesting though, because this is kind of like this is the whole point of what we're talking about, which is that the Jewish press aren't covering this, or I'd be curious how they're so, covering this because one, one yes. except well, there's a big exception there. I think. And right, how, exactly. What is exactly. their version of what's happening? Because 
that's the whole point is like, what do we want to believe about ourselves? And what one is a fact of a girl was murdered and it happened within right. this community. And then there's this sensationalization right. of in some ways for this to be the first kind of big mainstream Jewish murder trial is interestingly assimilationist in a strange way. Cause it's like murder is such hot copy at this time that it's like, we're sort you're sort of being brought into the mainstream in a way, even though there's all these strange, crazy images. And I'm curious in that writing, a, if it's either anti-Semitic or I don't know how you would call this exactly, but like otherizing or, or, right. or it, there's a it, fa- it fetishism built- around it. And how are the Jews talking about it? Cause obviously the community did everything they could to try and get this guy off in, including some sloppy antics, but. <laughs> well, I think the answer depends on which language the newspapers mm-hmm. published in. Uh, right. That's exactly, that's exactly right. The so, English so, press covered it one way and Yiddish, the Yiddish so press So you've another. read some of this stuff as well, Tony? No. Oh. <laughs> but no, he's, from, he's from, he has familiarity <laughs> with it. But you understand, the, but you obviously so, know no, a lot about the, I, ta- the context of the time that we're speaking about, so. Yeah, I think generally, uh, generally there was a divide between what English, the, the um, what ran in the English press and what English-speaking Jews wanted to portray to the larger public, and what uh, Yiddish-speaking Jews said to themselves. And the simple reason is because the the simple reason for this difference is that uh, anyone can read an English English Jewish newspaper. The whole Gentile world can read it. So, you know, the whole world is watching and um, Americanized English speaking Jews are sensitive to that. It doesn't pertain just to newspaper coverage. It, 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 uh, the same divide held true for, let's say, the vaudeville stage, where performances that Yiddish speaking immigrants or their children loved were seen as disreputable by English speaking Americans, because, again, they were more they were more vulnerable to the opinions of Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So this this holds true from Pesach Rubenstein down for decades. There's always uh, often a, a big divide between what Yiddish speakers said among themselves and what English speaking Jews said. Right. And, uh, you know, to Tony's point, you know, the the you know, the general press, the general English English language press, you know, some of which is more sensationalistic than others, um, you know, reports what they see in the trial. Uh, the Yiddish press at the time, which is very much a nascent press, there, there aren't a lot of Yiddish newspapers, uh, they reported in Yiddish as they see it, and they see it as, you know, this guy's a murderer. It's terrible. Uh, but it's all, and they and they report in the trial as, you know, similarly in a lot of ways to the English language press, but because it's in Yiddish, they're not, you know, as Tony said, they're not, they don't have to be embarrassed about it because ultimately the Yiddish press is a private conversation among Jews, you know, it's, you know, they, they, no one else can read it. Now, interestingly, there's a, a, a English language Jewish press and they're humiliated mm-hmm. by all of this. They barely write anything about it. And one of the, one of the English language newspapers is run by the reform movement. And one of the things they comment is a dig at the Orthodox. They say, oh, you know, being Orthodox was not an impediment to uh, Rubenstein being a criminal, uh, but they, they write virtually nothing about the trial, you know, especially in light in comparison to, you know, the rest yeah. of the press, they, they, you know, act like ostriches. They just put their heads in the sand. So, I think yeah. that's the, 
I, I just want to clarify something. You know, it's not, uh, Eddie's not trying to give the impression that Yiddish speaking immigrants were indifferent to the moral implications of the murder. It's just oh, that no. they, they, they were open to talking about it because, as Eddie said, it's a family conversation, it's a private one, where the respectable, um, middle class English speaking newspapers viewed it as such an embarrassment they didn't even want to talk about it. Um, but that inter- that dig at the Orthodox Jews is important because what Reform Jews were saying at the time, and Reform was just really solidifying in the 1870s, what they were saying is Jewish law is Jewish law does not instill morality. Jewish law, all Jewish law is, is a series of outdated uh, strictures. Uh, but it doesn't make one a better person. And and they were saying that uh, in part also to explain it's a critique of orthodoxy, but it's also justification for getting rid of, of the observance of Jewish law because they drew a separation. Reformed Jews drew a separation or distinction between morality and ethics and and legal in legal in, in the law uh, rituals legal um, minutia of what you should eat and how you should, you know, what kind of clothes you should wear and all that stuff. They said, look, Orthodox Jews are obsessed with these sorts of minutia, but it doesn't make them better pers- people. Um, and here's Pesach Rubenstein, perfect evidence of that. Here's a man that pays, he prays all the time. Uh, and what does he do? He commits a murder. A reformed Jew wouldn't do that. So isn't it interesting? I mean, of course, well, first of all, that's just like any news coverage is what suits your community and the paper it represents kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Not to be too narrow about that, but particularly when we're talking about these kind of small press situations. Um, But isn't it interesting that it then takes so much digging on Eddie's part? I'm just curious when we talk about Jewish identity and we talk about uh, there's something, you know, I don't want to to derail too much, but, let's say the concept of the mensch, which is sort of central to Jewish culture, this idea of a good Jewish man or a good man, a good mm-hmm. Jewish boy. It's a good person. It's a decent person. Decent person. And that that is a big, th- you know, there's the original myth, which is the chosen people, and then there's the mensch. And these are big um, cornerstones of, of Jewish culture and life. Right. Is that fair to say? Uh, At least philosophically. And so this stuff just doesn't square with that, which is why we're talking about it today. Um, And I mean, any society, nobody loves them. People don't you know, no one's proud of a murderer. But you sometimes it is more central to the narrative, though, of some religions where you need the bad in order to highlight the good kind of thing. And we tend to not focus on the bad. We tend to focus on being better and better and better and righteous, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it's interesting that, like, who wrote the books that you were reading? The history of the Jews of Brownsville. You know, that it's like a little mention here, a little mention there. And I'm curious, I know, I think you have one more tale for us, um, but that maybe we can do an abridged version of. Um, just as a, I'm just curious, actually, you don't even have to tell the whole story. I'm just curious if there are other, um, Mm, psychopaths not sorry other murderers who pop up throughout the next whatever 125 years or maybe earlier in jewish history but where they we didn't know about them and then they had to be sort of unearthed but they were important at the time but then the 
culture sort of decides to close the Pandora's box on them because they don't <laughs> jibe with the narrative. Does that make sense? Right. So in the wake of the Rubenstein trial, you have, and incidentally, I just wanted to, you know, create some closure by saying that he was, he was not in fact hanged. Uh, he uh, starved himself to death in uh. prison. Denying the hangman his uh, How long did that, how long did that creating, take? Uh, not that, about a week, not that long. Uh, he was kind of a mess. He refused to bathe. He only, he, it took him a week you know, to starve to, to death? Eat. Well, it was, I think he was very sickly. I, I, it was, this, but this is what the, this is, these were the reports in the papers. Um, not but in to, the wake of the trial, not, so he as used I, all the energy he had to murder her and then he, and then he took to his, <laughs> something couch. like that. He, yeah. you know, he, 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 but the he trial took of, its toll on of, an uh, already poorly yeah, it, person. It did. Yes. So, uh, in the wake of the trial, you know, as I said, they, there, there were these, you know, four murder pamphlets published. The entire trial transcript was published uh, as a book, you know, for popular consumption. Uh, in the, in addition, uh, I found in, a, in an anthology of popular songs from the 1870s listed a song called My Name is Pesach Rubinstein. Um, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> there's no music or lyrics, but, you know, that the fact that there was a popular song of that name is just astonishing. Yeah. Additionally, uh, Yiddish papers of the period report that um, the amount of anti-Semitism in general increased fairly significantly and Jews were chased down the street uh, by kids throwing rocks and screaming Rubenstein, Rubenstein, Rubenstein. The name Rubenstein became sort of a fill-in mm -hmm. for Jew. Uh, you know, it was, it, you know, it, it was, it, it made life really difficult. Amazingly also in uh, the autobiography of uh, Ab Khan, who was the editor of the Jewish Daily Forward, which would be, which was the largest Yiddish daily newspaper in history. Uh, he came to the United States uh, in 1881. He wrote that when he arrived in the country, Everyone on the Lower East Side was talking about the Pesach Rubenstein trial. That's five years after the Pesach wow. Rubenstein trial. So it was something that deeply, deeply affected the Jewish community uh, in in really significant ways. Um, and the fact that historians ignored this for so long uh, is, you know, to me, it's an, it's an indictment of. American Jewish history to, you know, in this respect, uh, for having ignored this because it was really the most significant interface, uh, of Jews in American media in the history of the country up until that point. Uh, but, but here's the thing, what happens in the following decades is that Jews are increasingly in the spotlight is criminals and even murderers. Yes. Also true. And, and, and sometimes those murder uh, the accusations of murder are true, and other times they're completely fabricated, um, and this really weighs on Jews. So, Is this for instance, like blood libel stuff? Well, it's a combination of so. So, first of all, um, in 1913, Leo Frank. A Jewish right. factory manager in Atlanta, Georgia, is falsely accused of murder and rape, and then he's lynched. Um, the lynching is, is is very serious. It helps the whole scandal around it. Uh, leads directly to the revival of the Ku Klux Klan, which had been dormant. Uh, 
it leads directly to the creation of the Anti-Defamation League. Jews realize that they need to start an organization to defend the good name of Jews. Um, and uh, half of half of George's Jew or half of the Jews of Atlanta leave the city permanently mm. after that. I mean, that's that's the kind of scare there is around the lynching. I mean, it's, wow. it's unbelievable. So that's 1913. Then there's the blood libel accusation against Jews in 1928. That's in upstate New York when a four four year old girl wanders into uh, the forest, wanders into the woods, disappears in the town, blames the Jews for killing her and using her blood. Uh, for ritualistic purposes. Now, this is an old accusation. The blood libel is an old accusation in Europe. Uh, by this time, it spread into the Middle East. Uh, but now in the 1920s, it apparently had spread to the United States. Now, eventually the girl was found uh, and, the, and the scandal died down. But still, it was yet another, another example of a false murder charge against Jews. So those were false. On the other hand, there were... Uh, Jews, uh, gangsters, for instance, for instance, were, of course, killing people all the time. Murder Incorporated also came into existence. Uh, I mean, this gang in Brownsville, Brooklyn, very near to where Pesach, where, very near to Pesach, where uh, Pesach Rubenstein committed the murder, is now a Jewish ghetto, Brownsville. And uh, it's, it's one of the poorest neighborhoods in New York City. And there was a gang dubbed Murder Incorporated, which specialized in killing people. I mean, upward of a thousand people were killed by Jewish gangsters in this gang uh, by 1941. And, and they were, so were they for Jews hire? Organized they were for so hire. They were contract, they were contract could owners. Jewish Anyone or not could Jewish. hire their contract owners. Yeah, then sometimes they worked with Italian gangsters. Too. Well, isn't right. yeah, so I wonder, isn't that, wasn't that um, Suge Knight's company, Murder Incorporated? I can't, or before Death Row, I can't remember. Or one of the albums is called Murder Inc. So, Possibly. Um, I'm curious Inc. if they Murder knew Inc. that the connection to that, or if they just that was their own idea. I, I think I think Murder Inc. is a tattoo shop. No, I, INC, Eddie, INC. <laughs> it, 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 Murder Inc. is part of American popular culture. In 1960, there's a movie called Murder Incorporated, but in that uh, starring Peter Falk and some others. But if, as I recall, J- Jewish references were taken out of the movie, so you didn't know it was a Jewish gang. Right. So, and, and, Jew- and Jewish historians don't address these things until the 1980s, and even when they do. Uh, the um, Robert Rockaway, who wrote the book, uh, um, uh, but he was good to his mother, uh, History of Jewish Gangsters in America, told me that um, when he wrote that book, uh, the heads of virtually every Jewish major Jewish organization in the United States came to him and asked him not to publish the book. And he also claims that uh, he was denied promotions in his department, uh, you know, because he had published this sort of, you know, history of Jewish gangsters. Um, so, you know, American Jewish history, historians, you know, to a large degree and for a long time, try to, uh, ignore this, this aspect of Jewish life. There, there's another scandal even before the Berkowitzes. And yes, that's, that's true. The, that's the scandal of Leopold and Loeb, uh, two right. Jewish kids from Chicago who killed another Jewish kid. And this was, um, became a very famous trial. Clarence Darrow defended them. Uh, they were found guilty. Future Supreme Court One Justice was Clarence Darrow, right? Was he a Supreme Court Justice? Or he was just a famous defense uh, attorney? Famous. I think he was just a famous oh, okay. defense famous lawyer. lawyer. Uh, but he, was one of the, to Upton, he was related to Upton Sinclair. St. Clair. 
Upton St. Clair. <laughs> we'll cut that. We'll also cut um, the Murder, Inc. thing I said because I looked it up and it's a different company altogether. But anyway, go on, Tony. But um, anyway, so Leopold and Loeb were all over the, the news for this. This really uh, uh, carried out this vicious neighbor uh, murder of a neighbor. And um, they were quite, oh, well, quite brazen about it. Um, it was totally huge. And they, these weren't kids from the Jewish ghetto. These were actually wealthy Jewish kids of German Jewish background. Um, and uh, what were the circumstances? And, uh, what were the circumstances of the murder? Circumstances that these two, these two guys, these two friends, I think they were at 18, 19, uh, who were apparently very good students, highly intelligent, possibly, it seems they had a romantic relationship huh? and uh, had it in their heads uh, that they were, they were fascinated by their understanding of Nietzsche and his notion of the Superman ah. who stands above the law and outside mm -hmm. the law. So they thought, well, we're brilliant. We're geniuses. What would it feel like to kill somebody? What feel like to kill somebody? So that's those were the, the circumstances, and they went went to jail. One again, one was killed in prison by a, a fellow prisoner. Uh, the other was eventually released, I think, in the late 1950s. Totally humiliating. But again, going back to the Jewish communal perspective, this was this was scandalous and humiliating. And so then, I guess David Berkowitz is the next most. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm sure there's people in between, but that's the next big blip where people have to deal Probably. with the sensationalism of this, of a trial and it hitting the mainstream media basically. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, uh, not only that, it's, it's, a, you know, son of Sam is a major, major trial. Like it's, you know, the, the, the this was, you know, that summer. But it's so interesting that the ADL asked, um, that the guy who wrote the, but he was good to his mother. Is that what it's called? Which is, which Rock is such a right. great yeah. title for a book. Um, <laughs> that they were like, could you not? Well, you know, the, you know, the, you know. The, On the other hand, yeah, how they're, big, they're, they're, you know, you get it. It's like the community is so small. Why draw attention? We don't. Why are we going to vilify ourselves? Uh, I mean, this is the nature of PR, essentially. It, it, yeah. It's right. not just. It's not just that the community was small. It's that anti-Semitism in this country became very serious by the 1920s, even more so in the 30s into the 40s. And so Jews were vulnerable. They not just felt vulnerable. Yes, they were well, vulnerable. I add to that. But, uh, but I would think the ADL yeah. would say that we're always just one bad case or one bad story away from that same vulnerability. Um, and, you know, not to get too heavy, and, we don't, and I don't want to get into this, but we've certainly seen that in the last couple of years, if not months. Um, Mm -hmm. that the scales I, I can tip quickly. Right. So as much as mm -hmm. we want to talk about the identity politics of it, I mean, it's all of these things, but this idea that yeah. it doesn't really um, square with the basic values of be of Jewish religion and culture. And it's also a very dangerous thing to potentially open yourself up to. I'm curious how the mm -hmm. New York Jewish community reacted to Berkowitz if, and son of, son of Sam, if you guys know anything about that. But um, we should also wrap it up soon, guys, because it's getting to be that time. All right. I mean, you know, I think, you know, in the end, the, the, the Jewish position is always one uh, of precariousness. You know, one trial, one thing like this that reflects poorly on the Jewish community um, you know, history sort of shows that it could all come crumbling down. Right. And quickly. this shitty um, inverse of that being that 
you can be good and good and good and a great contributor to society. And in some quadrants of this world, there's always somebody looking to say, see, I told you that they, I told you that they killed babies. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a happy note to end on. <laughs> I, I'll give you a happy note. I haven't killed anybody. Never done it. Not not today, anyways. Not today, no. But that is the, re- the thing it. with the blood libel thing. It always resurfaces. I mean, obviously, you know, and it's tied. Oh, yeah. and it's called different things, and it's tied into different things, and it's, you know, they repackage it, and they repurpose it, and whatever it is. But it... It's always just the one bad. I mean, it goes for everything in in life, but the one bad deed is the thing that people want to remember you for, not the or that want to associate. Sure, of with, course, not the uh, which shows the the predisposition predisposition to believe ill of a group of people or a person. I mean, it happens individually too, obviously, you know. But there we are. Well, I I I, I think ill of everyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, at least so. you're consistent. Yeah. Um, guys, this was really fascinating for me anyway. If the if we if there's even six people still listening, I mean, God bless them. <laughs> <laughs> but really, it is it is fascinating because it's ultimately about reflection or I, I don't want to say self-reflection because it makes it seem too individual, but how a community chooses or doesn't choose to hold a mirror up to itself. Mm. And if you're interested in more um, fascinating snippets from Jewish culture and history, I definitely recommend Eddie's book, which Eddie, where can people get that and what, and tell them what it's called and where they can get it. Uh, the book is called uh, bad rod, bad rabbi and other strange, but true stories from the Yiddish press. Ooh, look at that. Tony's got a copy. Wow. I'm so impressed. Uh, it is available from Stanford University, University Press's website or bookshop.org, is it? Uh, or, you know, Amazon. We'll put a link in the um, episode notes so people can get the book. Um, but it's a terrific book and a great read and is, is very Thank much you. what we're doing here, which is the um, looking at the outliers and what does that say about us? The strange but true aspects of Jewish history. There you go. True. Um, Guys, this has been absolutely delightful. I look forward to our next meeting. I'm Jessica Chaffin saying nothing but goodbye to Tony Michaels, (laughs) Dr. Tony Michaels, and Dr. Eddie Porter. Thank you. 